It's certainly very exciting to be here. And the Fum Tsara Agra is what it says in Perkyava. As much as the effort, so is the reward. And there's always a direct correlation between the amount of effort and how successful a particular talk goes. Because, as you know, it doesn't, I, am, I have the hardest business in the world. Because if you're a plumber, you know, so then you just have to fix the drain. And if you're not sure whether or not you fix the drain, so you bring in another plumber and he says, yeah, you fixed the drain. But if you're a speaker, you can't say, I gave a great speech. It's the people's fault that they didn't like it. You know what I mean? You have to totally work with the people who are there. We're doing this together. And as successful as it'll be, it's dependent on how much all of us put into it. So I know, you know, uh, you had to wait and I had to walk. And all of us together were able to invest a lot in this year. So I'm sure it's going to be very successful. Thank you. It is now um, Yudbet Kislev. It is the 12th of Kislev. The significance of that should be clear to everybody in the room. That means there are only 13 shopping days left till Hanukkah. And, uh, you know, by the non-Jews, they have it easier. They only have one day to give gifts. Some people give gifts on all eight days of Hanukkah. Now, you have to be very creative to come up with something that's cheap, and you'll say it's sentimental, and it's just cheap, and they'll throw it away. But it doesn't really matter. You just have to give something, you know? You have to give something, and that's just really nice. And, you know, uh, we have to... Ta-da. So uh, we really have to be able to focus. But here's the problem. Thank you very much. Nothing on a nice cold night. You get to drink a nice hot tea. Oh, everybody watches. <laughs> ah. <laughs> anyway, so the problem is, of course, that it's so interesting. You come to something like Hanukkah, and people are busy preparing. What are they preparing? They're buying gifts. They're getting ready. They're doing all kinds of things, you know. You know how much money people spend on gift wrap? It's absolutely amazing. You spend all this money on fancy gift wrap, the big pulp, and everyone just rips it off and throws it on the floor. You know, what's the point? Stick it in a little bag. But um, that's my own personal feeling. But the, the truth is, there's so much preparation. People put so much time. And what often happens is you can miss the most important part because you get so caught up with the preparations. I'll, I'll tell you the question. I won't tell you the answer. The answer is really a whole different year. But I will tell you the question because I think the question is profound. I had a student in Darachibina where I have the privilege to teach, and, um, and she called me up the day of her wedding. And she was close to tears. She says, Rabbi Olavsky, this is the most important day of my life. I'm going to become married now. I want to dive and I want to prepare. Do you know what they're doing to me? They have a team of people here. They're doing this, my hair, my makeup, my They're doing all this stuff to me. And that's what my whole focus is. My answer is not as important as the question. The question is profound because it means that people get so caught up in what they're doing that they don't have time to think why they're doing it. Right? And that's, uh, that's always a problem. So, um, right? Pesach is the best example. People get so involved in preparing with the cleaning and the shopping and the cooking and everything that goes into it and they sleep through the Seder. You know, because we were so busy preparing, we were so busy preparing. I always bring this example, I love to bring this example, it's one of my favorite examples, matzah. 
Right? If you go someplace where they really take matzah seriously, people want to bake their own matzah, they want to get their own matzah, then they have the little charts and they break off the right amount of matzah and then they shove it all in their mouth because they don't start counting until they swallow it and they're chewing up the matzah and they're going through the matzah and it's such a beautiful scene and piece after piece of matzah. And I finally was at a Seder and I said, why are we doing this? So we have to eat matzah. Why? Because the Jews ran out of Egypt so quickly that their bread didn't have a chance to leaven. So let it leaven now. <laughs> For those of you who aren't familiar with the baking process, you make dough. It almost never rises in 18 minutes. Right? You want to make halot or something, you know, you make it. What do you have to do? You wait. So it didn't rise. So give it 40 minutes. Give it 50 minutes. Give it an hour. And then it will rise. Then you can bake it. We wouldn't have to eat matzah. We have to eat matzah because their bread didn't have a chance to leaven. So let it leaven now. Someone said it baked on their backs. That's ridiculous. You know how hot it would have been? They would have all died. There's no way you're going to bake on their backs. Well, that's not the worst part. The worst part is, you know, they eat the Korban Pesach the night before with their belts on and their walking stick in their hands because they're going to leave Egypt. At Chatzot, all the firstborn are killed. And the Mitzvahs start pounding on the door. Get out, get out. They said, sorry, we can't come out in the morning. For six hours, they're screaming at them to get out. You get up in the morning, you say, get out. I said, I can't go dressed like this. What do you got? We go through their closet, take all their nice clothes, you know. Do you have any jewelry? Take the jewelry. Take the gold. Take the silver. Just go. We can't go yet. Why? We have to cut down those trees. Why? Because we're going to make a mishkan out of them. Okay. And they start cutting down trees. Okay, go. I can't. Why? We need instruments. Why? To play at the Yamsuf. Why? You'll find out. Okay, here's instruments, right? We need weapons to fight them all. Like, here's weapons, just go already. I can't. Why? We need Moshe. What's he doing? Looking for Atzmot Yosef. Anyone see Yosef? Yosef, Yuhu, Yosef. Okay, this all goes on for another six hours. Now it's Chatzot Hayom. It's noontime. For 12 hours, the Egyptians have been screaming at them to get out. They finally have everything loaded up, and the Jewish people decide, what a great time to bake bread. And everyone starts baking bread, and then they get rushed out of Mitzrayim so quickly, that it was so unexpected. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of strange. And, uh, and the thing is, whenever I ask this, people are like, yeah, yeah, so why do we eat matzah? I said, ah, that's a good question. <laughs> you have to invite me back. But, um, where I come from, we call it job security. But, uh, you know, but you understand how people... They prepare, they spend so much time preparing, they never stop to think why. Never stop to think why, you know? There was a, uh, a friend of mine, he was a, uh, uh, Rebbe in a yeshiva, you know, and his wife was very busy all week with taking care of things in the house, you know, and they sit at the Shabbos table and she says, what's the parasha this week? He says, he tells him, whatever the parasha is, he says, oh good, that's my learning for the week. That's all I got in. You know, we get so busy, we get so occupied, so busy with things, and sometimes what we're getting busy with is the Chag itself. The life is not supposed to be a circle. We keep going around in a circle, we keep coming back to the same point and the same point. Life is supposed to be a spiral. You come back to the same points, but you're always on a higher level. And that's why there's something called Shemitah, there's something called Yovel. Every seventh year, you have to stop growing. And then the 50th year, it's a higher level. You stop growing things, all the slaves go free, all the land goes back to its original owners. It's Yovel. And you have to count seven times Shemitah, but you cannot count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's not going to work. You have to go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty-one. 
you have to keep going through the same cycle, but each time coming back to a higher level to be able to reach 50. Right? And that's, that's what it's got to be with life. Every week you come to Shabbat, and every week it should not be the same Shabbat. It should be a Shabbat on a higher level. And you have to keep building. Says the Alshech, the 50 years of Yelvel is the life of a person, because you don't start counting a person in, in Judaism until you're 20. The average person lives till 70, says in, in uh, Tehillim, which means that you have 50 years, that's your life. And every year of your life has to be a higher life, it has to be a higher level, you have to keep growing, you have to keep going up. You don't want to be the same person at 20 as you are at 30, as you are at 40, as you are at 50, etc. You have to keep building. Okay. So, that's my introduction. And I want to give you an idea for Hanukkah that has meaning to me. I hope it has meaning to you, and I'll share it with you. We have the story of Mechirat Yosef. The brothers get together, they decide that Yosef is bad, they sell him into slavery. Right? Comes the head of the slaves, they put him in prison, comes the head of the prison, right? Then they take him out, they put him in charge of all of Egypt. Hard to keep a good man down, right? And now he saves all of Egypt from starvation, and the whole world is starving, and they're all coming to Egypt to be able to buy uh, food from Yosef. And Yosef remembers the dreams about all the wheat bowing down to him, and he realizes he has to get all 11 brothers down here to bow down at him. That was the prophecy that he had. So he says to them, you guys are spies. And this is not true. We're 12 brothers. One, we don't know what happened to him. The other one's at home. He says, yeah, if that's true, bring your younger brother here. So I can't. My father won't let him. Oh, yeah? You don't get any more food. And I'm keeping one of you hostage. And he takes Shimon, and he ties up Shimon, and he puts him down. This way he says, if you try to bring a phony guy, I'll bring him in here. And we'll see whether that Shimon recognizes him. Because if you try to bring in some phony, if it's not really this brother of yours, then he'll know right away because he won't be in on it. So I'll keep one of you here. And he sends the rest of them home with their, with their food. What happens? They're on their way home. I never had to wear glasses. This is a new thing. I had, I had to go for eye therapy because it ended up my eyes don't work together. You know, like, I couldn't do this. I paid a lot of money to do this. <laughs> so now I have vision therapy, and my eyes work together, and now I can't see anything. Because it seems like one of my eyes is far-sighted and one is near-sighted. So as long as they work separately, I can see, use one eye to see far away, and one to see close by. Now they work together, I can't see a thing. So I have to wear glasses. Anyway, or Hashem. So, says the Pasuk, V'yiftach ha'echad esako l'oseis mispo l'chamaru b'malon. And the one, ha'echad, and the one opens up his bag to give food to his donkey. And he sees that his money bag is in the neck of the bag. Who is ha'echad? Says Rashi. Who levi? Shenisha yochid me shimon ben zugai. His body shimon wasn't with him. All throughout the Torah, it's shimon and levi, shimon and levi. Now Shimon's not with him, so Levi is called Ha'echad. Now I'm the last guy to want to take a living away from uh, honest Bible commentary. I'm very happy that Rashi has a job. I'm not suggesting we take it away from him. It's not an easy job. Mrs. Rashi came down, they were going to a wedding. She says to Rashi, how do I look? She says, you look nice. But I'll tell you the truth, I don't think that scarf matches the outfit. And I, I think that the outfit's a, you know, 
is a little too warm because it's, you know, it's kind of warm outside. And I don't think those shoes are practical. And she says, Rashi, do you have to comment on everything? <laughs> anyway, little Rashi joke there. So, uh, it is in fact the only Rashi joke I have, alright? Just so in case you're wondering. So, you think, why did he choose that one? That's it. That's the only one. Yeah? So, I don't want to take a job away from Rashi. The Torah says, Ha'echad opens up the bag. The one opens up the bag. Says, Rashi, that must be Levi. Why isn't the Torah just right? Levi opened up his bag. And Levi opened up his bag, and there was, there was the money. It has to say, the one opens up his bag, and Rashi has to say, that must be Levi, because Shimon is not there. Fascinating. So, to understand this, we have to understand why he tied up Shimon. He had ten brothers to choose from, and he chose to take Shimon to tie him up. And Rashi gives a few different reasons why he takes Shimon. He says he takes Shimon because who hishlichu lebar? He's the one who threw him in the pit. Who sha'amer lelevi? He He's the one who said the dreamer came. So he knew that Shimon had a particularly sore spot for him, and he felt like he was going to be the biggest troublemaker. Yosef He wanted to separate him from Levi. What does that mean? At the end of Yaakov's life, he brings his children together to give him brachot. Now these are not the usual brachas that one would expect. You expect to go to get a bracha, call to bracha v'atzlocha, nachas from the kinder, you know what I mean? You, know, you should have a nice part of nasa. That, that, that to me is the, what you normally think of when you think of a bracha. Well, if I stay here long enough, I, I might get a sandwich out of this. Anyway, <laughs> something better than when the room is nice and hot and you get a nice cold drink and everyone else is... <laughs> anyway, but that's not the bracha he gives him. He calls his brothers together, give him brachas on his deathbed, and he says, Ruben, brachas kamayim, you're a little unstable. Sorry, you lost the kahuna. Uh-uh. And you, Timon Levy, you guys have anger problems. You have to go into anger management. You guys aren't going to be the melech, you know? And he's giving out these wonderful brachas. Now, that's a kind of strange bracha. Kind of strange bracha. I'll tell you the truth. It's probably the best bracha you could possibly get. And unfortunately, most kids today will never get such a bracha. Never get such a bracha. I tried to explain to my students, it was a whole different thing when I was going to school. You know? When I was going to school, they still hadn't discovered DNA. So you can imagine, you know, to do a, uh, to do biology was a little easier, there was no DNA, you know. Uh, computers were very easy because they didn't have a personal computer yet. The first one came out when I left high school. They didn't have any personal computers to work on, you know. A lot of these things didn't exist. It's like the, the teacher says to a kid, why didn't you, why don't you know all the presidents? When I was your age, I knew all the presidents. And the kid says, how many were there back then? Four? You know what I mean? What's the big deal, you know? They had a much easier education because they didn't know that much back then, you know? One of the things that they hadn't discovered yet is self-esteem. They only found that in the past 10 years, mm-hmm. 10, 15 years. Why went to school? There was no self-esteem. If you act like an idiot, your teacher said, stop acting like an idiot, and you did. I didn't know that really the teacher had destroyed my self-esteem. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have said to her, don't tell me that I'm acting like an idiot because then you'll destroy my self-esteem. So now the teacher has to say, 
I appreciate that you're expressing your individuality <laughs> by acting like an idiot. You can never tell a student that they're wrong. I remember years ago, before I was teaching, you know, uh, I was only teaching boys, you know, and I, and I was asked to come and speak to one girl seminary many years ago. And uh, this one girl, I asked the question, the girl gave an answer, I said, no, that's wrong. She said, how can you say that to me? <laughs> you just invalidated me. I said, what are you, a parking meter? I'll put in another quarter, you know? That's disgusting. How are you talking to me? I said, okay, I'm sorry. It's too late. And she just sat there like mumbling and facing at me. The other so now it doesn't matter what anybody says. I said, that's an interesting answer. I said, let's look for another one, you know? One that doesn't involve Yashka. Let's see if we can find another answer. You know? I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong. You're big, you know? You know, I guess, I guess, maybe, I don't know, maybe the moon is made of green cheese. I didn't really check. True, I, I don't know, you know. No, anyway, you're wrong, you know. Which means that the best bracha a person will never get, which is somebody to tell you what's wrong. You know? You see somebody walking, you know, and they've got a piece of toilet paper stuck on their shoe, you know, and nobody wants to say anything. But the only one who will tell him is his best friend. you got a piece of toilet paper and you oh, how come nobody said anything to me? Nobody wanted to destroy your self-esteem. <laughs> I don't think my self-esteem works that I'm walking around with a piece of toilet paper on my shoe. My friend, Rabbi Hanukh Tella, told me a story once. He says his, his son had a great Rebbe. It's just he had never actually mastered the concept of personal hygiene. He had bad breath. He smelled bad. He, you know, it was terrible, you know. And the kids would always make fun of him, but he was a great teacher. So Hanukh Tella came to see him one day after class, and he says, I bought you something. I want to explain to you. This is called soap. This is shampoo. Here's a toothbrush. Here's a de you know, deodorant. You know, let me show you how to use this stuff. You know? And the guy did a double take. And he says, you're a great Rebbe. But the kids are making fun of you behind your back. And I don't want that to go on. I thought that was unbelievable. You know? And that's, that's why I hang around with famous speakers like Rebbe Teller. Who uh, taught me also that you should never name drop of the famous people you know. And he said he heard that from every friend. And um, <laughs> in any event... <laughs> The truth is, who, who's going to give you Musa? Who's going to give you Musa? The Svas Emes. The Svas Emes. He was being raised by the Chidushi Arim. The Chidushi Arim comes in and he sees the Svas Emes in bed and he says, What are you doing in bed? You didn't get, you don't get up, you don't daven, you don't do anything, your whole life is going to slip out of your hands, you're not going to get anywhere, you're not going to accomplish anything, and he yells at him for like 15 minutes. And probably he says, Well, you have anything to say for yourself? He says, I got up to daven Vasikin and I went back to bed. <laughs> Why didn't you say anything? And miss the chance of getting Musa from the Chadushia Rim? What a great opportunity, you know? And the truth is, the people who love you the most are the ones who will sit down and tell you, listen, you're making a mess of yourself. You know? And those are the brachas he gives out. So when he speaks to Shimon and Levi, what's the first thing he says? Shimon Levi Achim, period. Shimon and Levi are brothers. Well, isn't that a good thing? It could be a good thing. If the two of us are helping each other to become better, that's wonderful. But if the two of you are, you know, looking at each other like, you know, and the two of us are planning what we're going to do next, and each one of us strengthens each other in our unhealthy behavior and play off of each other, then the best brach I can give you, says Yaakov, is a chalkam. Separate. Spread you out. 
because the two of you are not bringing out the best in each other. Instead of having the strength and courage for Shimon to be Shimon and Levi to be Levi, the two of you are this pair called Shimon the Levi. And because of that, you never will find out who you are. You'll never have the strength of character to be what you're supposed to be. That is your strength. Yosef saw this. When he had to take somebody away, he takes Shimon away. And as soon as he takes Shimon away, they're a short journey away, and Levi is not even called Levi anymore. He's called the Echad. He's called the One. Now he's the individual. And Levi took this message to heart, and for the rest of his life, he always tries to be the individual. So, they go down into Egypt, and Yosef tells them, don't, live the, don't leave the land of Goshen. Stay here and beat Jews. Don't assimilate in. He says, tell the Egyptians that you're shepherds, because shepherds are to'eva, it's an abomination. Well, thanks, uh, Yosef. What's the matter? He's still upset because we sold you into slavery, you know? I go around and tell everybody I'm an abomination. He says, yeah. Because then they'll leave you alone and you'll stay in Goshen and you won't become part of Egyptian society. And that worked for a generation. The next generation wanted to become part of the society. <clears throat> and that caused a counter-reaction by the Egyptians because the Egyptians were getting very upset. Says the Medrash, you couldn't get a seat in the stadiums or in the theaters because the Jews had all the seats. Nothing's changed. <laughs> Go get a football seat. It's all Jews. They have all the seats. <laughs> you, know? you know? And the Egyptians are like, hey, these Jews are taking over. And everybody started to sell, except for Shevet Levy. Shevet Levy didn't leave. And they're like, come on, you guys. What are you, you know, you know, backwards? You know, come on. Time to grow up. Time to go out. Time to fit into the new society. It's not the old country anymore. We're in Egypt, you know, this cultural center of the world. And they said, that's okay, we'll stay here. Well, Pyro saw there was a problem. And they said, how are we going to get the Jews? And he came up with a great plan. He came out with a gold brick around his neck. And he said, my friends, my loyal citizens, I'm calling on all good Egyptians for your help. You see, our good friend and loyal citizen, Yosef the Jew, came down... And he saved our whole country from starvation. And words cannot express how grateful we are. And he built all these giant cities to hold grain. Well, we don't need those cities anymore for grain. There's no more famine. But you know what we need those cities for? To hold all the gold and silver that's come down to us because of Yosef. We have to rebuild those crumbling cities and make them into treasury cities. We need cities to hold all the gold and silver. And I'm asking every loyal Egyptian, anyone who loves their country, to come forward now and help us in this endeavor. We'll pay you for your time. But we need your help. Who were the first ones to show up? The Jews. Because the Jews are always the first ones to show up. Because the Jews were more German than the Germans. You know? We were more Egyptian than the Egyptians. Hollywood! which captured the American dream, was all built by a bunch of Jewish immigrants. The Warner Brothers and Mayer and Goldwyn and, and all these people, all the, the great movie moguls were all Jews who came in as immigrants. 
and they figured out what's meant to be an American better than anybody. They figured out how to be more American than the Americans. We are more Russian than the Russians. We always figure out the, the, what makes a people, and we do it better. So we were more Egyptian than the Egyptians. And we all came out for this big building project, except for Shevet Levi. And the other Jews said to Shevet Levi, it's not right. You live in a country. You owe them their, your allegiance. You have to come. country needs you. You have to help. And he says, that's okay. I have a tradition from my father's I stay here. He says, oh, what will people say? Eh, people will say whatever they always say about Jews. It doesn't really make a difference. It doesn't matter what we do. You know? My friend, Rabbi Y.Y. Rubenstein, who happens to be Scottish, lives in Manchester, and um, he's much funnier than me. It's painful to admit. But at least we keep him in England. Anyway... So he was, he was asked to speak at a conference on university, you know, about, uh, you, know, you know, how to deal with certain crises on campus. And he was asked to speak about the new anti-Semitism, you know, which is really anti-Zionism. And he says, the new anti-Semitism is just the same old anti-Semitism. They just came up with something else, you know. He says, now granted, about 60 years ago, since the founding of the state, there's no question that the state was taken from land that belonged to other people. There's no question that since the founding of the state, it created a tremendous refugee problem and countless suffering to millions of people. There's no question that, um, they've been, that the country has been responsible for a number of wars, and since they have nuclear arms, it could have easily turned you know, into a, a, a major world conflagration. And there's no question that most people would agree that the government is corrupt. And yet, I wish Pakistan a lot of help, a lot of luck. I have nothing against them because of this. So he says, you see, you thought I was talking about Israel. That's anti-Semitism. Because if it can apply to a whole bunch of countries and you only pick on Israel, that's the difference. And he says, you know, the thing about anti-Semitism is people don't need any reason. They don't need any reason. So this one uh, Anglican priest you know, says, well, would you say anti-Semitism is the same thing as the you know, Islamophobia that's taking over the country? He says, no. People, people are, are angry at the Muslims because after the bombings that blew up buses and trains, 35% of Muslims said they supported it. And they would also be a terrorist. They'd also blow up stuff. There are no Jews trying to blow up any buses. There are no Jews trying to take over the government and make it Jewish. You know, all we're trying to do is be left alone. People hate us just because they hate us. That's what Shavit Levy said. You guys, go ahead, go, go, go for your wonderful project. See if the Egyptians like you any better. And of course, slowly they stopped paying them, and then they took away their civil rights, and then they enslaved them, and the trap was shut. And it was too late. It was too late. What are you supposed to do? They were captured. Except for Shevet Levy. Shevet Levy was never enslaved. They never became slaves. That's why Moshe and Aaron could go wherever they wanted. Because they were content to stay in Goshen. Of course, when Yaakov gave them the bracha, stand apart, don't be afraid to, to go against the grain. They stayed in Goshen. They didn't assimilate in. They didn't get affected by anti-Semitism. They stayed alone. Moshe takes all the Jews out. They stand at Har Sinai. And Hashem speaks to them. Moshe goes up. 
for 40 days and 40 nights. But the people made a mistake. And the Erev Rav comes along and builds the Egel HaZahav, the golden calf. And the Jewish people don't know what to do. Except for Shevet Levi. They're sitting there yelling at them, stop, stop. Moshe comes down the next morning. He sees what's going on. He breaks the Ruchot. Says, Mila Hashem And Shevet Levi all gathers around. And nobody else came. Rosh Shimon Schwab had a relationship with the Chavetz Chaim and he was on his way to take a job as a Rav in Germany, which of course was a, you know, a big problem there with reform and all the other problems. And he goes to get a brach from the Chavetz Chaim. The Chavetz Chaim was very old at this point. There were some people who thought he, maybe he was losing it a little bit, you know. And he goes to get a bracha. I'm going to Germany to take this job as a Rav and give me a bracha. He said, I'll give you a bracha. Are you a Kohen? He says, no. Oh. Are you a Levi? He says, no. Uh. How come? He says, because my father wasn't. Oh. How come your father wasn't? Because his father wasn't. Ah, his, fa- his father wasn't a Kohen or a Levi either. No. How about his father? He says, my dad said he lost it. <laughs> you know. Nechavetzheim looks at him and says, you know why you're not a Kohen or a Levi? Because 3,300 years ago, when Moshe Rabbeinu stood up and said, Mila Hashem Eli, my great-great-great-grandfather came and yours didn't. Now you're going to Germany and God's going to say again, Mila Hashem Eli, who's for the sake of God? Don't miss it a second time. Stand up and do what has to be done. And nobody was ready to come except for Shevet Levi. They said, we're here. We're on your side. Mila Hashem Eli. And so they were chosen to become leaders and teachers and all kinds of wonderful things that they had to be given to do in Klai At the end, Shevet Levi gets this unbelievable bracha from Moshe Rabbeinu. And uh, you're the teachers of Torah and you're the ones who will work in the Beit HaMikdash and all this wonderful stuff. And what happens to Shimon? We don't hear anything about Shimon. We don't hear anything about Shimon in Mitzrayim. We don't hear Shimon. We hear one thing of Shimon at the end of 40 years. Bilam wanted to curse the Jewish people and he saw that he couldn't. Why? His last bracha was turned, his last curse was turned to a bracha. Matovu alecha Yaakov, Mishkan Osecha Yisrael. Look how beautiful are your homes. Each one is a Mishkan. Each one is a Beit HaMikdash. How can I destroy a people when every house is Kadosh? The only way to destroy the Jewish people is to destroy the Kedusha of their homes. So he says to Moab and Midyad, get your cutest girls. Have them go out, you know, and trick the Jewish people. They tricked the Jewish people, and the one thing that the Jewish people could not resist, and we saw it yesterday, they offered them sales. <laughs> and they had old women there, and they were, it was just the prices were out of this world. I mean, trample people to death at Walmart, that's nothing. You know what I mean? They were, wow, look at this. And they said, we got the really good stuff in the back. That's where the young girls were. Oh. You start with a bargain, let me tell you. Anyway, so one thing leads to another, and they get involved, and then the girls get them to serve their Avodah Zarah. That's a terrible thing. Terrible thing. And Moshe sentences them to death. Avodah Zarah, Gilerayos, all the bad stuff. And a lot of these people were from Shevet Shimon. And Shevet Shimon comes to their Nasi. Zimri ben Salu, 
who is really Slumio ben Sru Shaddai, who according to the Gemara is really Shol ben Akananis, one of the people who went down to Egypt with Yaakov. That means he's got to be about 250 years old. 250 years old, elderly sage, came down with Yaakov. And they say to him, you are a Nasi. You've got to stand up for us. We're brothers. Achim. All for one and one for all. All of us together have to join together. You have to stand up for us. Now what Shimon should have said was, I love you guys, but you shouldn't have served the Vodazara. And now you're going to be, you know, punished. And I suggest you do tshuva beforehand. But that's not what he says. He says, you're right. We're all in this together. And I'll, I'll jump in and help. And he takes a Midianite princess. Could you imagine this scene? Fill in any elderly sage that you want who's alive today. And imagine he grabs this non-Jewish girl to take into his tent to do something inappropriate. And Moshe Rabbeinu is looking at this. Moshe Rabbeinu is a third of his age. No, it's half his age. He's 120. And he says, Moshe, this is, this is Asur. So who allowed you to marry a girl from Midian? Ooh. And the whole place is going, ooh, this is bad. And Pinchas, who comes from Aram, who comes from Levi, who's a young man at the time, looks around and says, where's everybody? Look what's going on here. And a magefa comes, a plague comes and starts killing tens of thousands of people. They're dying in the street, they're dropping dead. And Pinchas turns to Moshe and says, aren't you allowed to kill somebody in this situation? And he says, yeah. He says, give me a spear. This 250-year-old sage and this relatively young kid goes in there and he kills him and the plague stops and the Jews are saved. If he didn't stop it, everybody would have died from that. Would have wiped out the whole Jewish people. But you killed the 250-year-old sage. Who are you, kid? And the people wanted to kill Pinchas. Because there is where Shimon and Levi meet again. The whole time it's Shimon and Levi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Yaakov says, separate. And Levi does, and Shimon doesn't. And when they meet back, Levi is prepared to kill Shimon for what he's doing. It's not just all for one and one for all. And this is the story of Hanukkah. Because the Hashemunayim were not very popular. The Hashemunayim were a group of religious fanatics who insisted on forcing their views on everybody else. They opened up the rebellion by Matis Yehu, the Kohen Gadol, killing someone who was eating pig. That was the opening of this holiday of religious tolerance, of acceptance and love. Kill him! <laughs> and they ran off to the mountains, and they fought by themselves, and a lot of the times they weren't just fighting Greeks, they were fighting other Jews. And they stood up for who they were and what they believed in. They had the courage to be different. You know how hard that is? Of course we know how hard it is. You know how hard it is? Not so much by the Svaradim, but by the Ashkenazim. You know, you're, you're in shul and somebody starts talking to you. You know? And like you don't want to talk, but the person keeps asking you more and more pointed questions. 
And you're like, hmm, 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 hmm. What are you talking about? I did not. <laughs> you know, you don't want to talk. You don't want to talk. You know, sometimes it's somebody older. Sometimes it's somebody in a position of respect. You know, and and you're put into a position. Who wants to feel uncomfortable? Nobody wants to feel uncomfortable. There's an absolutely unbelievable story. I heard it from the person it took place with, Rabbi Hire, who was at the time of Rav in Vancouver, uh, Canada. Now he's the head of the Simon Wiedenswald Center in Los Angeles. He t- I heard him tell the story himself. It was in Great Night. In 19... Anyway. When I was a younger man. <laughs> he was a rabbi in Vancouver, which is in Canada. Canada is still part of the Commonwealth. At one point, England owned most of the world, and through um, poor planning, they lost it all. But all the countries that used to belong to them are still nominally part of the Commonwealth, which means they can be part of the Commonwealth games and stuff like that, and they can drive on the wrong side of the streets, you know. And one of the things they get to do is still recognize the Queen of England as their monarch. So for places like Australia, you know, and uh, for Canada, this is evidently very exciting. So every now and then the Queen comes to visit her subjects. And she came to Canada to be able to pay a visit. And uh, when the Queen is coming, so all the important communal leaders are invited to come. And... Um, and uh, Rabbi Haya, being one of the local rabbis, was invited. So he sends his apologies and will not be able to attend. He gets a call from the Queen's advance party and says, Rabbi Haya, why are you not coming? The Queen will be so disappointed. I'm sure. So he says, well, look, you know, the problem is I'm kosher, you know, and uh, this event is not kosher. He's from the Lower East Side. You know, this is not kosher and I just, I can't come, you know. I'm sure the Queen was looking forward to meeting Rabbi Haya. So, um, so the advance party says, is there a rabbi in town whose supervision you would trust? And he says, yes, for kosher events, we trust Rabbi so-and-so. He says, if we hire him to provide you with kosher food, would you honor the queen with your presence? He says, yeah, okay, no problem, fine. So he shows up, and all of the elite of the city of Vancouver is there, and he says, hi, Rabbi, hi, good to meet you, you know what I mean, and how are you, everybody, you know, like this. And then they send them to their tables. And he sits down at his place, and his dishes and glassware and silverware is identical. And he figures there must be a mistake. And the mashkiach comes running over. He says, Rabbi Hayer, I've never seen anything like this. They made me go out and buy new settings, new glassware, new silverware to match everybody else's. But if you take a look at the bottom of each one of yours, you see I put this little sticker? This is your sticker, you know, so you know which are your dishes and your glasses and your silverware. It's brand new. I tabled them already in the mikvah. You know, and, and your food will be identical to everybody else's, but I brought in separate pots. We cooked everything separately. It's just amazing. But they went out of their way to accommodate you. He says, this is so beautiful thing. He has his first course. At the end of the first course, they dim the lights. And he turns to the person next to him and says, what's going on? He says, haven't you ever been to a world dinner before? He says, no, it is my first, you know. So he says, well, they move everybody around from table to table. So that everybody should get to meet each other. He says, well, where do I go next? He said, if you check your card, you'll see the next table is, you know. Hold on a second. (laughs) 
And he gathers up his plates and his glasses and his silverware. <laughs> now, this is about an eight-course meal. All right? And he carries them across to the other table. He drops all his stuff on the chair, picks up the other setting, brings it back to his table, and resets it. I once spoke in England at a uh, dinner for Sir David Alliance. His personal butler was walking around the room after everything had been set up, picking up each glass to make sure there was no smudge on it. This is after the florist had installed the special lights to shine on each, you know, um, centerpiece, and everything was like, you know... I said, this is pretty impressive. And they said, this is nothing. At a royal dinner, they put out the silverware with a ruler to make sure everything is perfect. Now, Rabbi Hyde didn't have a ruler. He just set up the plates and the glasses and the silverware as best as he could, and he puts his on. And you can imagine everyone at the table going... <laughs> and course after course, here's poor Rabbi Heyer his dishes across the room to another table, and it's just, it's just impossible to miss. It's just the most incredible scene, you know. And another Jew, prominent Jew from the community, comes to Rabbi Heyer and says, Will you stop it? You're humiliating every Jew in this room. He says, Well, you know, I keep coaching. Then don't come. Go home. You're coming here and schlepping around all your dishes. You know how stupid you look. You're making every Jew look ridiculous. Rabbi says, what can I do? You know, I had already accepted the invitation. They went to all this trouble. For me to leave at this point would be impolite. And he just bared it. He bared the humiliation as he went from place to place to place. At the end, there's a reception line. This story is many years ago. There was This is before Princess Diana. You know, Charles was still a single man. He was in line to become, as he is now, the King of England. And Queen Elizabeth and, you know, and Charles were standing on a little platform, and you don't shake the royal hand, you just wave, you know, as they come by. And there's the Queen and Prince Charles waving as everybody's walking by. And, and Rabbi Hyatt walks by like this, you know. And as he's walking by, Prince Charles says, Excuse me. Yeah. I couldn't help but notice that you were carrying your dishes <laughs> all around the hall. So he says, yeah, that's because I keep kosher. Now, Prince Charles is, because the Queen or King of England is the head of the Church of England, so of course he studies religion. He says, well, I'm under the impression that's only regarding the food. He says, yeah, but if the food has been used on the plates and the plates absorbed from the food, and the person in charge says, we must keep the line moving. And Prince Charles extends his hand and pulls Rabbi higher up onto the platform so they can continue their conversation. And there is the Queen and Prince Charles and Rabbi Haya. Haya, Haya. <laughs> and he's having this whole discussion with him about kosher laws. And finally, this prominent Jew comes up to the reception line and he tries to get Prince Charles' attention. And he says, yes. And he says, I'm also Jewish. And he says, well, I didn't see you carrying your dishes around. <laughs> I, I tell this story over, I have to tell you, I, I'm going to try to tell it over. Every time I do, I get that same sense of embarrassment. My skin starts crawling, you know. Would I have the courage to do that? Or would I just go from seat to seat, wherever I happen to be, and keep telling everybody I'm not hungry, you know what I mean? I actually pick up my dishes and carry it around the room. Because nobody wants to stand out. Nobody wants to be the strange one. No one wants to be the one when everyone's doing the wrong thing to say this isn't right. 
There's a minug in high school here in America, as we all know, that the seniors have one day that's called Senior Cut Day. They all agree not to show up. I had a girl in my class who was the one girl who showed up on Senior Cut Day. And all the girls wanted to kill her, you know? And she said, I'm not embarrassing the teachers. I owe them, you know, I owe them that much respect to actually show up. He says, yeah, but you're going to make everybody else look bad. He says, listen, I don't have to support what you're doing if what you're doing is wrong. You know, when when somebody, you're in the middle of telling a great story to someone, and they say, but isn't that Lush and Hara? You know, I mean, technically, I suppose, you know. (laughs) So I guess you really shouldn't be telling that story, Rabbi, should you? Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> and everyone else is like, come on, come on, finish it up already. All right. <laughs> it was amazing. This past year, I was on the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Lush and Hara video. They put me all around the world. At the same time, I was asked to be the MC of this evening they have in Yerushalayim for like 4,000, 5,000 women. I was the MC about Lush and Hara. And then they made a special men's evening in, you know, in uh, Harnof, and they asked me if I would MC that. And the fourth thing was that they asked me to give a sheer on Lush and Hara at the big day for women in Harnof, you know, in the Yerushalayim. And someone said, why are you at every Lush and Hara event? I said, because they're making a full court press this year to try to get me. <laughs> they figure if I go to enough of these events, I'll keep my mouth shut. They were wrong. But, um, but I keep trying, I keep trying. But you see, but, there is, but, but when everybody's talking, who has the courage to say, but this is wrong? This is wrong, and I'm not going to do it. <coughs> they caught this kid shoplifting at Walmart. You know, somebody was there, he told me the story, and they said to him, why'd you do it? He says, my friends told me to. He says, if your friends told you to jump off a building, would you do it? He says, if there were three of them? No, I don't know, I have to think about it. (laughs) Why'd the monkey fall out of the tree? He was dead. Why'd the second monkey fall out of the tree? He was dead. Why'd the third monkey fall out of the tree? Peer pressure. (laughs) How many people have the strength to stand up? You know, in a school, you'll find every now and then there's like one kid who's getting picked on. You know? Baruch Hashem. More than once, it was one of my kids who said to this kid, and my kids were pretty popular, they said, I'll be your friend. And their other friends were like, then we're not going to be your friend. And he says, then, then don't be my friend. But this is wrong. This is wrong. Who wants to stand up and say this is wrong? Who wants to stand up and say, I'm not going to do this? You know, we get bullied into doing stuff. We get bullied into doing stuff that we don't want to do and we don't believe in it. But we have that koach to be different. Hanukkah gives us the power where we can be different. It's not easy. It's not easy. I knew a girl who went to Catholic school. She thought she was Catholic. Until I met her in ninth grade. And I happened to tell her that, you know, since her mother's Jewish, she's Jewish. And she started looking into Judaism. This wasn't easy because she thought she was Catholic. She was slowly getting into it. And she tells me that her mother's Christmas, at her grandmother's Christmas party. She looked at the watch and she said, oh, I'm sorry, I have to light my menorah now. She goes to the window in this nice Catholic house, you know, and lights a menorah. I can't imagine what that's like. can't imagine what that's like. You know, all of us have our own challenges. 
Every one of us has a chance in our life where we can stand up and be... Where do we get that from? Yaakov. Yaakov stands alone. When Yaakov stands alone, that's when the Malach Shal Esav comes to attack him. You want to be different? That's not going to happen. But he went back alone. You know why? To get the little pachim ketanim. And it's brought down in the Sfarim. What was that pach? It was the pach shemen that the Hashvanayim found. The Greeks want to destroy us. What do they do? Do they kill us? No, they don't kill us. They outlaw Judaism? They don't outlaw Judaism. They say no Shabbos, no, no, um, no uh, uh, Mila, and no Rosh Chodesh. And you can't learn Torah. But you want to build a sukkah? Build a sukkah. You want to eat kosher? Eat kosher. You know what I mean? Now we're not going to stop you from keeping all of your, your customs. We don't want you to learn Torah. And how do we describe what they wanted to do? Haman wanted to kill us all. You know? The uh, Babylonians wanted to exile us from our land. What did they want to do? Yivanim, Yivanim, Nekbetsu alai, Azai bimechashvanim, Upotsu chomos, chomos vigdalai, Vitimu goshmanim, They broke holes in our walls and were matame our oil. Wow. That was their battle plan. Spartacus, Eradicus, Hepatitis, let's go. Oil. Tommy, Tommy, look to some over there. Tommy, Tommy, everybody let's spread out. Tommy, Tommy, Tommy. Oh, General, say a whole oil can over here. Tommy, Tommy, Tommy. And they came back and said, mission accomplished. We will matame all the oil. That's it? Should we matame the wine? No, nah, don't worry about the wine. How about the fruits and vegetables? No, 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 just the oil. If you find any Taha oil, call us because we want to matame it. That's the main thing. Why? Because they said to the Jews, I don't care if you're Jews, but don't be different from everybody else. You see the wall that we've made those holes in? That's called the chil. It's on the harabayas. Till here, non-Jews can go, past here you can't. Said the Greeks, no, 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 no. We're all going to go together wherever we want. The problem with you Jews is you put too much emphasis on the oil. Because oil doesn't mix. You take the oil and the oil floats to the top. You're going to mix it up and it keeps separating and flowing to the top. That's why in, in salad dressings they put in xanthium gum. If you ever wonder what that's doing there, it's trying to hold all the stuff together. Because left to itself, oil separates and rises above. And they say, that's the problem with you Jews. You think you're oil. You think you're special. And the Greeks wanted us to be all the same. And you know what? Most of the Jews went along with that. Who were the ones who had the courage to say, I'm not going to do this? Who are the ones that I meet who go to public school and say to me, I dropped out of the band because I refused to go, you know, and go to band practice on Shabbos. I wasn't going to do it. You know? Who are the ones, uh, a kid who tells me that he's in public school, you know, and he pulls out his little bench and they say, they cut the mazon at the end in, 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 in public school with his little kosher lunch he brings along. Where does that power come from? It comes from the fact that every Jew has the ability inside of ourselves to stand up and have the courage to be different. I don't have to do what everybody does. You know? You find, I, I always love this question, you, know, you see people say, you know, says, I don't know, you know, you go to certain communities and you see everybody dresses the same. Everybody dresses in black and white or whatever it is. Everybody dresses the same. 
I said, yeah. He said, well, if everybody dresses the same, then you don't have any individuality. I said, if you need clothes to get individuality, you don't have any anyway, so don't worry about it. He said, you need clothes to become an individual? What happens if somebody else puts on your outfit, they become you? You know, where's my yellow sweater? Ah, now I'm an individual. <laughs> but you know the most amazing thing is? You know, I teach seminary. I can always tell what the colors are that season. You know, every season there's different colors. I just look around. I see like four girls all wearing the same color. I said, that's the color this year, right? You know? And I'm like, yeah, how did you know? Lucky guess. Because <laughs> everyone's going to go out and buy the latest style so that they can be individuals and dress like 50 million other people. You know? Everybody came up with the idea to put in an earring at the same time. Well, this is like, you know, hey, I'm an individual. Look, I did the same thing as 50 million other people. Look how creative I am, you know? And you see, whatever the style goes, you know, Britney Spears, you know, years ago, she started wearing these little belly shirts, and suddenly you saw every girl wearing a belly shirt, even girls whose bellies should not be seen under the best of circumstances. <laughs> and that's what everybody was wearing. And then the rappers started wearing these big pants that were falling off of them because when they were in prison, they didn't have a belt. So now you see all these nice Jewish kids dressing like they're in prison. You know? See? Look, I'm an individual. <laughs> That's good. Don't run too fast, Mr. Individual. You know what I mean? I'm an individual. I copied what everybody else does. Look what an individual I am. You know? It's absolutely amazing. But do we have the courage to be a Jew? Do we have the courage to stand up what makes us proud? Who we are, where we come from. This is the hard thing to do. It's very hard. We live in a society, and this is like a... Uh, I talk to kids during this time of year. And it's so ironic. Because what is Hanukkah about? Being an individual, being away from society. And what do they do? Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah. You know? And you'll go someplace and there will be the big Christmas decorations and then the Hanukkah decorations and the Christmas decorations and they say, come and be with us during this holiday season. So, our holiday season is we don't get together with you. We do our own thing. And we don't have to celebrate when you celebrate and we don't participate when you participate. We can be proud Jews. This Christian woman going to Israel because most of the people go to Israel are Christians. Most of the Jews go to Puerto Rico, and um, and, uh, and she says to me, "Can you be a good Samaritan and put my bag up?" I said, "No, but I could be a good Jew." I don't know if you ever heard this term, "Good Samaritan." It's in the New Testament. Yashka was walking around and he wanted, you know, he needed help. And a coin wouldn't help him, and a levy wouldn't help him, and Israel wouldn't help him, but a Samaritan, a Kusi, who is always the enemies of the Jews, came and helped him. Good Samaritan means bad Jew. Can you be a good Samaritan? No, but I can be a good Jew. A good Jew. We live in a time when it's getting harder and harder to be an individual. There are a lot of people. I, I heard from... Um, Rabbi Kalfin was Rashiva in Waterbury, and he says, you know, you can, you can find, um, my parents, he says, my parents may not have kept halacha as good as some people today, but they had something you can not see today. They were proud Jews. There was a concept, that's for the Goyim, it's not for us. We don't do that. Jews don't act that way. 
today, you have people who are careful to keep halacha, but otherwise they think completely like the Goyim, they think like everybody else. There's nothing special about us anymore. We don't stand for anything anymore. We become like everybody else. We get pulled into the society. Somebody told me they were very excited that the guy who wrote Shrek 2 was a firm Jew. I'm not taking it away from him. I think that's a wonderful thing. But that's not like a source of Jewish pride. Baruch Hashem. It was a firm Jew who wrote Shrek 2. And he says he was inspired by a share he heard from every Olawik. I made sure to mention this to every Olawik. I can't tell you how proud he was to know that he was the inspiration for Shrek 2. You know? So I have no problem with that. I remember seeing a list, you know, famous Jews, famous Jews, Einstein, you know, Karl Marx, you know, uh, Freud, you know. I said, these people are famous people. They're not famous Jews. They happen to be Jewish, but there's nothing about them where they were willing to stand up and be a Jew. There wasn't anything about them where they stood up and had that courage. Oh, how hard it is to have that courage. We all know that. We're all given opportunities where we can do something. Another story. I'm not a chassid. I'm not so good at this. So I do it the best I can, you know. I think it was the Sanza Rebbe comes to the town. He comes into town and he starts sniffing. Another chassid, I'm looking. He starts going through town. And they all start following him. And no one knows what's going on. And he knocks on this one person's door. And this old Jew opens the door. And he sees the Rebbe there. And he says, Rebbe. And the Rebbe goes, excuse me. <laughs> and he goes to his closet. And he digs down. And on the bottom of his closet, he pulls out a priest's outfit. And everyone in the town goes, <clears throat> And the guy goes, oh no. And he says, what is this doing here? He says, well, it's kind of a long story. <laughs> he says, what is it? He says, I used to be the guy I'd stuck in this town. You know? And uh, it's not a wealthy town. It's a, it's, no. We're not, we're not poor poor, but we're certainly not well off. And I remember there was one day, a poor man came. And I took him around and he collected money. And, and the, you know, a little later that morning, another poor guy came with another terrible story. I took him around and people were upset at me already. I said, listen, we don't have that much money ourselves, and you're going to bring all these aniyam around, you know. Towards the afternoon, middle of the afternoon, another guy came with an even worse story. I said, what am I going to do? I can't take him around that everybody again. So he knew that there were these spoiled rich kids who like hung out in town at the tavern. He says, listen, they could write, you know, they could give this guy money, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a big deal. So they come in, and by now they've all been drinking, they all made labor dick, you know, they're all having a good mood, you know. And he comes in, and they're like, hey, look, you know, the, the, the guy my stock is there, you know, you know, come on in, you know, have a couple of drinks. He says, I know, guys, I, I, I need your help. Oh, I need your help, you know. So he says, yeah, I need you to, uh, to help this poor guy. And it's laughing, ah, poor guy, you know, it's like, I need you to give money, you know. So this one guy says, you know what, Rabbi, we'll give you money. I want you um, to dress up. I have a priest outfit at home I use for purpose. I want you to dress up like a priest and march through town. And if you do it, we'll give you the money. Gosh, he's got a position in town. Got a position in town. How can he embarrass the position? Not to mention his family. You know, but here's this poor guy. What's he going to do? He decides he's going to do it. 
and they all, all the drunken guys dress him up and he starts marching and they're playing instruments and they're carrying on and they're screaming people don't know what's going on they open the doors and there's the Gabite stalker dressed as a priest with a bunch of drunken hooligans and they're screaming at him and they're throwing garbage at him and they're like Hashem, just let me get through this, just let me get through this, you know. And he manages to finish the whole parade, and these guys are falling over themselves laughing, and they say, Rabbi, that was worth whatever money you need, you know, and they give the poor guy a lot of money, and he goes home, and he takes off the outfit, and he hides it in the bottom of his closet, and he sits in the bath for two hours, and he throws himself in bed and pulls the covers over his head, and doesn't come out for four days, you know, and when he comes out, everyone says, well, it's not Pesedah, not Pesedah, it wasn't right, how could you do this terrible thing, you know what I'm Alright, after a while, Baruch Hashem, people find other things to talk about, you know. You can imagine after that, you know, shortly after that, he resigned his position. He had enough of his job, you know. And that's the story. So the Rebbe says, now it makes sense. When I came to town, I smelled Gan Eden. And I was trying to find where it came from. And it's coming from these clothes. And buried, when you get buried, be buried in these clothes. And you'll go straight to Olam Haba. How did the story come out? Nobody really knew the story, except, you know, when they dug up the cemetery, they had to move all the bodies. The Russians made them move the bodies. And they find this one guy, dressed in a priest outfit, and he's untouched. Looks like he was just buried yesterday. The grave was uh, 100 years old. That's how they found out the story. Who's got the guts to be an individual? Who has the guts to stand up for somebody when nobody else is going to stand up for them? Who has the guts to say, this is wrong? And I'm going to do the right thing. That's what Hanukkah is all about. It's having the courage to be yourself. We live in a generation where everybody's, everybody's doing what everybody's doing. Because everybody does it. And to find the strength inside to say, I'm not going there because it's not right. I'm not saying that because it's not right. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this instead. I don't care if it's popular or not. <coughs> the people who have the courage to be an individual and to stand up those are the people who have the koach of Yaakov, of Levi, of Timchas, of the Chatzinayim. For them, Hanukkah has a special meaning. Mitzvah Hashem, every one of us will find inside of ourselves the strength to be able to find our greatness inside. Thank you. Shavuot Tov.